Thanks for joining us on the Effortless Swimming Podcast. To get transcriptions, bonus videos, and to be the first to hear about new episodes, go to swimmingpodcast.com. Welcome to the Effortless Swimming Podcast. My name is Brenton Ford, and today's guest is Andrew Reed, and he owns Reed Performance Training, pretty close to where I live here in Melbourne, actually. And we got introduced to each other through mutual friends. And the reason I wanted to get Andrew on the podcast today was he knows a lot about strength and conditioning, but it goes a lot deeper than that. He has a background in competitive martial arts. He's also uh, done a couple of triathlons himself, but he works a lot with triathletes in strength and conditioning. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that today, What, how he sees strength and conditioning playing a part of endurance sports. But he, we also go into a lot of stuff in terms of goals versus systems, uh, the process that you go through to building your strength up from someone who's just beginning, what habits have the biggest impact on your health, and what kind of approach he sees uh, as being the, the right approach to to health, fitness, and well-being. So it's uh, a really good podcast this evening. Hope you enjoy it, and uh, make sure you go to effortlessswimming.com to keep updated with the latest clinics and camps that we're doing. We're about to release uh, the new or the next Hell Week in Tanyapura in Thailand, so uh, be sure to check that out. And we've also pretty close to finishing the Art of Triathlon Swimming program with Annabelle Luxford and Clayton Fatale, two of triathlon's quickest swimmers. So that's uh, almost almost finished too. So make sure you go to effortlesswimming.com and check that out. We joined today's podcast when Andrew and I are talking about a mutual friend of ours. So let's get into it. I, I met Mitch at a bike shop and he was complaining about how they were going to cut holes in him and, you know, all this stuff wasn't working. And, like, of course, he was in pain. His body wasn't working properly. And, you know, even with the surgery, if they've gone ahead and just done the surgery, which is what they wanted to do, the same problem would have come back because mm-hmm. they didn't fix the underlying problem. So I managed to convince him to wait a little while and we fixed the underlying issues. And then he had the surgery and so the pain actually went away and then he was able to go and race uh, last year in Europe up until I think he ran his bike off a cliff or something, but he banged himself up pretty badly. Um, yeah, that's right. And so, and, and so, you know, like elite performance is slightly different because you're always going to be on that edge of, of hurting yourself. Um, and then you get normal kind of age group triathletes. And I don't even mean like age group is at the pointy end, which are these days are almost like pro athletes anyway. Um, mm. But, you, you know, a lot of triathletes like Joe or, or even like me who aren't very fast and – all I want to do is then just do all the endurance stuff. And then I don't realize that, hey, you know, mate, you're 85 kilo. You're not designed to be an Ironman for starters. Um, you may be coming with no real athletic background, your general movement quality. Like you're not very athletic. So the expectation that you're going to be a great athlete is a little bit wrong. Um, and so, you know, sooner or later they just break down. And, uh, you know, this is one of those things with, I think, the strength training guys. A lot of them come from, you know, we lift heavy. And they have no idea what it's like to go for a five-hour ride. Um, and then you get the insurance people who have never been in a gym before and can't even do a single push-up. It's no surprise that you know, the two groups don't really talk to one another, but there's not many people actually kind of dealing with both in any sort of an effective manner. So you know, yes. some of the stuff I see is just terrible. I mean, uh, you know, when, when I was getting ready for Ironman, a guy who really knows a lot about strength training, I asked him for some advice. He said, oh, you know, make sure your deadlift is – is really big. And I was like, why? He said, because, you know, that's stride length and posterior chain strength and all this stuff. And so I tried it. 
and then my back started hurting from all the riding and, and you know, heavy deadlifting after you'd been stuck in a single position for a few hours the day before. Mm. That just, you know, I, I could see injuries coming, so I stopped. And it made me realize that, hey, a lot of these strength guys don't know shit about this thing. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, I, I find the same thing with, uh, say, physios, for example, if they haven't specified in swimming. Uh, they give very generic advice and they don't they just don't know the mechanics of the stroke and how the muscles work to even you know if you're so I'm 43 if you go see most physios at 40 years old because you've got a calf or Achilles problem from running they'll just say what do you expect you're over 40 that's pretty normal and while there is research to show that hey it's it's more prevalent in older runners I mean the problem is that they don't they're not runners they don't know how to fix it they don't really have a, a treatment plan that gets you back to running. I mean, I would actually suggest that this book I'm writing is about running. I'm probably more up to date on running rehab than most physios are, and it helps. I've got a buddy who's head of sports med at Institute of Sport level, so and, and he actually is a runner and deals with a lot of AFL kind of guys and hockey players and stuff like that. So uh, I, I've learned a lot about running rehab from him, but there's a lot of people who come to some of the workshops I run, and I'm always a little bit uh, freaked out by how low their level of education is because, it, it, I mean, that, like you said, I mean, they know nothing. And then they want to tell you how you should be treating it and fixing it and all that kind of stuff. And most of the treatment involves don't do the thing that you love doing. I don't think that's much of a treatment plan. Yeah, and that, you know, it's the same thing with the, with the physios uh, who don't know swimming is they'll say take a couple of weeks out of the water and, uh, and let it heal. But as, as a swimmer, you can't, spend, you, know, you can't spend that long out of the water unless you want to go back three months of training. So... Um, I find that you know if you if you want um, if you want something that's really going to work for you, you've got to go to someone who's got expertise in that specific area. Um, if they're just generalists, then you know it's it's not going to work for you, and you're not going to get the the right advice. Like you were saying with the the deadlift uh, for you know, a strength a strength guy giving you that for for Ironman training. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, for but how, how many shitty coaches are there? And that, I mean, shitty just in every field of employment. I mean, you know, you can ring up the bank or Optus or whoever and find a horrible person to talk to on the phone. It might take you three or four goes to actually find someone who actually can help you. Um, how many bad triathlon coaches are there? Bad running coaches, bad, you know, like there's just so many of them. There's not many who are actually, you know, legit and, and know what they're talking about. They just don't have the experience. And how did you get into strength and conditioning? I mean, I know you've got a, um, a martial arts background, and then sort of how's that, how'd that turn into strength and conditioning and then working with triathletes? I was, uh, I was just a skinny kid and I really wanted to compete in sports and I could see that, uh, you know, developmentally, and I don't know why I realized this when I was like 13 or something, but I could see at 13 that I was already behind other kids and I thought that maybe if I lifted weights that might, um, well, A, I wouldn't be so skinny. So that was, that was just... Uh, I mean, aesthetics I was worried about, but B, I thought it might help me play some sport better. So I, I started lifting weights and, um, you know, sort of went down the bodybuilding path because that was about the only thing that was available back then. But then, uh, you know, got to about, I don't know, like 21, 22 and started finding, and, and this is all pre-internet, so it's, it's not like it is now. I mean, you know, it was very difficult to find books and you know, the only way you were getting in front of good coaches was to actually be in a high-level sports program yourself. So, because um, I was actually pretty good at Taekwondo, so I, I had a little stint on the national team. I got to meet some higher-level 
kind of people and started learning some stuff and realized that, hey, this thing I wanted was strength training, not bodybuilding training, and I learned the difference and uh, went down that path. And, you know, for martial arts, strength training is actually pretty simple. I mean, most martial arts fights are... Uh, even boxing, which is, you know, like a championship fight, it's 12 three-minute rounds, so it's a 36-minute fight. That's quite short compared to something like, well, like Ironman or like, um, let's say, like a military selection recruit training kind of thing, which might go for weeks and weeks at a time. Uh, And, you know, so as I've gotten a little bit older, I've started looking at, you know, I had these gaps in my knowledge. So that's, that's how Ironman came about for me was, uh, I was standing at the finish line for the first Melbourne Ironman. Of course, Crowey won in, I mean, he went under eight hours. And in fact, I think Cam Brown did, I, like the top three guys were around the eight hour mark. So blazing fast, perfect day. And they all looked so good doing it. I was like, well, that's awesome. I should do Ironman. And I, I'd never seen one in person. Like I'd watched it on TV, but seeing it live was pretty neat. And so I said to the editor of Breaking Muscle, hey, what do you think? Like oh, zero to Ironman in 12 months. And she loved the idea, which unfortunately meant I had to go and do it. And uh, you know, that, that's when I started learning about all this other stuff. So, um, the, and that was 2013, I think. So, you know, the last two years has been a journey of rapid discovery of a whole bunch of things. And, and I was probably a little bit lucky because I did swim at school, so I was a little bit lucky compared to a lot of people. I didn't have to learn three sports. And the year before I did Ironman, I did a charity bike ride where we did a thousand kilometers in a week. So that was a fairly serious week. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I could swim a bit and I could, I, I knew the ride wouldn't be so much of a big deal, but I just had to teach myself how to run. So uh, that was actually where the, the biggest problems were over the time. But, you know, it, it, it's, been, it's been very interesting. It's weird how. You know, from an endurance point of view, I don't think I've really got great chops. I mean, you know, I've done some stuff, but I don't really feel like I've got an enormous street credit. You can go to any triathlon and meet, you know, some 50-year-old guy who's done, you know, 20 Ironmans or something, uh, and all of them faster than me. Uh, But in the strength world, doing one just puts you miles ahead of everybody else because no one else will even try it because they think doing anything more than like a minute of training is cardio. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. and, and of course they're all fearful of doing that because they, they, they don't want to lose their precious muscle which I think is hilarious because what most of them might find is that actually if their aerobic system was working better they'd probably be I mean in all around better shape which is kind of what I said before I mean people get into this triathlon thing wanting to be elite athletes I mean maybe just try to be a healthier fitter human being which probably means you're going to need to do some strength training um, but the strength guys are in the opposite boat so they do way too much strength training and one of the downsides of the strength thing is it actually causes like a stiffening of the heart. So your heart's supposed to be able to stretch. It's like the other muscles. So as you push harder, uh, you know, it should actually be able to kind of expand a little bit more to allow you to deal with more blood. Um, but if you do tons of like breath holding with high blood pressure, you stiffen the heart up. So you actually make yourself less fit. So this is where you get these guys who are like, oh, yeah, I squat, you know, 200 kilo, but I can't walk up a set of stairs. Well, no kidding, man. Your heart's like a rock. Like, it's just not going to help you like that. So, you know, if they would just do a little bit more cardio stuff, maybe they don't lift as heavy, but they're probably going to live a better life. And so, I mean, that's become really what what we do. And so, you know, Joe is there doing some strength stuff and um, and even the stuff I did with Mitch. I mean, when he first came, uh, he was with Darren Smith at the time. And so Darren came in one day and said, look, this is, this is what's wrong with him. This is what you need to look at. Basically, turn him into a ninja. 
And so he wasn't even saying, hey, make him a faster runner. He was just saying, hey, fix all the stuff he can't do, like these basic motor patterns that someone would need to be called athletic. And so that's what we worked on. He said, you know, he had him do car wheels and somersaults and all that kind of stuff, which is lucky because that's the sort of stuff we do anyway. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm interested in how you went from being from that sort of strength background or strength base to transitioning to a more endurance athlete. So what were the sort of changes you found yourself going through and what did you have to change to your strength regime? Well, I lost six kilo. <laughs> you would have felt a lot lighter? I, well, that wasn't intentional. That was just what <laughs> happened. I mean, you move around more, your body adapts and... Um, you know, it was one of the interesting things. I was in Korea teaching at this thing and um, and the, the two guys who were like looking after me and hosting me and stuff, one of them said to me, how do you stay so lean? I said, do two and a half hours of cardio every day. And he laughed. He thought I was kidding. I said, no, no, I'm, I'm serious, man. Like, seriously, two and a half hours of cardio a day, eat whatever you want. There's your, your diet plan. And, um, and he said, you know, how do you do strength on top of that? I said, well, you know, to start with, you have to accept the hit. I mean, because you, you can't be awesome at everything. That's mm. bottom line. I mean, you know, you have to accept that your strength is going to drop a bit. Or if you're coming from the other end, you know, and you're a really fast runner or swimmer or whatever, and you get you, you want to start lifting some weights, it is going to affect how fast you swim or run or whatever to start with. But then what you'll find is it actually kind of evens out uh, once your body gets used to it. And that could take a while. So for me with running, it, I think it took about two years to get to the point where I was running comfortably, where the recovery cost of it the next day was minimal, um, you know, and, and part of that was to begin with, I was, I was just too, and when I say too big, I mean, you know, I, I was just under 90 kilo and I, I was too heavy to run well. Uh, and, and, you know, part of this sort of journey recently, I've even been looking at the physics of it. So there's an excellent book called Faster written by a guy who was a rocket scientist. So, you know, he's designed satellites for NASA and stuff like that. So, I mean, he, he's a legit rocket scientist who happens to be into triathlon and in it he breaks down all the physics of, hey, here's what happens to heat exchange for a big runner. Here's what the forces on the body are. And you look and you go, well, you know, for someone my size, at just over five-minute kilometers, I'm actually already starting to overheat. So, you know, if you added even another few kilo on top of that, well, maybe you go, well, it's five-and-a-half-minute kilometers. And then, you know, the, the clock's already ticking as to how much longer you can hold that pace. So... Meanwhile, the 65-kilo elite triathlete, he can get down to four-minute kilometers before he's starting to overheat. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, it, it, you know and, and then the good thing about that is you can say, well, trying to push for four-minute kilometers, for instance, in a half Ironman for someone my size just isn't going to happen. You know, and, and I need to realize that if I try to do that, it's going to be a disastrous day out. So I need to be far more realistic about my goals. And I found it allowed me to be very relaxed about sort of the pace I could expect from my body. And the other thing is, I'm, you know, I'm 40 plus. I'm, I'm not going to be the fastest person in the world taking something up at 40. Mm. Um, but the the journey along, I mean, you know, everyone, everyone wants to be awesome at everything. And I, I think, I mean, sport, sport the way I grew up is very different to sport the way it is now. This medal for participation thing where everyone gets a pat on the head and we don't keep score. And, and that's really different. I mean, back when I was a kid, if you weren't good enough, you didn't make the team and not everyone got to play on the team and, and you were told that, hey, you weren't good enough and this is the things you needed to improve. And, um, you know, I, I think it's a great lesson for people that, you know, you're not always going to get what you want, that things in life are going to suffer when you take on new things. And so that can be, you know, if you're 
a happy triathlete and you've got family commitments and work commitments and training stuff and then you decide you're going to take on something else, whether it's strength training or whatever, you're probably going to have to give up time somewhere else. So that could mean maybe you're not going to hang out with your family so much. That, you know, is that a decision that's okay or not? I mean, that's, that's a decision only you can answer to. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, I don't know, the self-correcting nature of it, the idea that, that you know, it's okay to be moderate at things, um, I think those are pretty important lessons for a lot of people. So my, my big thing with people at the moment is that what we do in the gym should be helping us outside the gym. So, you know, if I can get you to be disciplined with yourself when you're working on something that, that's quite taxing, there's a fair chance that the willpower and the discipline you develop to not quit when things are hard will pay off somewhere else. If I can get you to commit to coming in four days a week, even when you want to stay home in bed, again, that willpower is probably going to pay off somewhere else where, uh, you know, you don't want to do that report for the boss or you don't want to go do something else and, and you know, you basically start relying on, on these ingrained habits to, to get you through things. So, um, yeah. That, that's it, what I think is what, one of the biggest benefits of sport is the, the life skills it teaches you in, in day-to-day life because, yeah. uh, and I've spoken about this quite a bit on the podcast, but when, um, when I was growing up, my, my dad was my coach and he used to, well, he still coaches um, a squad back where I grew up and uh, every new swimmer that came through, it was, you've got to say hello, goodbye, thank you, please, just general manners. Uh, teach that to everyone coming through and some kids, it takes them six to 12 months to actually learn the basics of having good manners. But yes. they become better people when they, you know, when they stop swimming. They, when they go to work, uh, they get along with people. They, you know, better socially, and just just those sorts of things come through. And then you know, I coach a masters group, and ninety five percent of the people will say hello, goodbye. But you still get a couple who haven't sort of gone through that as a kid, and you know they they don't say hello on the way in. So it's about you know if you can teach people as as kids, or whether you've got to teach them as adults if they haven't been taught when they were younger. It makes such a difference, and and I think people are more receptive to learning. You get doing two sport. workouts at my place before I ask you what other people's names are, or I ask the existing customers what the new person's name is, and if you're late, there's a punishment as well. So you know, because uh, you know, I think punctuality is this weird thing these days where people think it's okay to kind of turn up around a certain time. I mean, you know, if, and with an editorial perspective, I mean. Hey, if the article needs to be in by nine o'clock on Monday morning, it means I need it at nine o'clock Monday morning because maybe we need to put it up in twenty-four hours' time, and there's a lot of work that needs to go into it before it goes up. So, you know, it's uh, punctuality. I think is, is something that's really gone. But I totally agree with you. You know, so if people come in and, and they don't know each other and they don't want to talk to one another and just do their own thing, we actually ask them to leave after a little while. So I, I'm not interested in. Um, People just kind of coming in and doing their own thing, but yeah. like that's okay. But you know, if you want to train on your own, then then you need to go and train on your own. Don't come to a group and bring your solo mindset with you. You've got to be part of the community because I think the you know a lot of these endurance sports. If you look at um, like the history of evolution, so have you read Born to Run by any chance? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've listened to the audio book. It was okay. that was one of the best. Best books, uh, oh, it was just so interesting, I couldn't, uh, couldn't stop listening. If you look at some of the stuff, so there's a section where he talks about persistence hunting. And persistence hunting is this thing that we had to have done at some point because 
we didn't even have basic tools for the first couple of hundred thousand years we were around as, as a homo. Uh, so, you know, we had like Homo habilis and Homo erectus and, and then into Homo sapiens. And so in the, in the early shapes, we didn't even have, and they had these things called hand axes. And you think, well, a hand axe, that's, that's pretty cool. That's like, a, like an axe handle with a stone bit on the end. A hand axe is a sharp rock. So that's a, that's a pretty basic tool. So that's the very start of tool making. Um, and, and so you're not going to kill many animals with one of them. I mean, you've got to, like the animal has to be maimed or fallen over or something before you can even get to it with your sharp rock to kill it. But we were still eating meat at that point. And how we were doing it was actually by chasing stuff until it fell over because, you know, animals can't sweat like we can. So we can run long term. So there's this, this great aerobic thing. And so this has been, again, for me, like I've learned all this stuff. And as I've learned it, I've gone, well, actually, we're supposed to be moving for periods of time. So, I mean, we were designed to do this. And sitting in a gym, sitting in a chair, not moving is actually sort of denying our humanity. Um, but so, so we had this persistence hunting thing. The average length of a persistence hunt was three hours. So in the early days of marathon running, do you know what the average marathon time was? No idea. 3.15 in the 70s. So as a Boston qualifier in the 70s was the average marathon finishing time. People were really serious runners. These days it's four and a half hours. But, <laughs> But because it's a bucket list thing, right? It's not. It's not for this. It's not necessarily for serious athletes anymore. But what you have, you have a big group of people all coming together, all doing this thing we were put on the planet to do, which is basically run, because that's a primary evolutionary adaptation. You know, and we've got whole things within us, like some of our muscles, some of the way we do things, the way our bones are formed, are basically only for walking and for running. So if we don't do it, we're again we're denying this aspect of our humanity. But if you uh, if you get a group of people together and you make them go for a run, that's just like being on a hunt. And, you know, so when we come together to exercise, we're actually kind of uh, like revitalizing that part that's, that is really hidden deep within us. I mean, you know, people talk about lizard brains and, and sort of modern man brain. I mean, this is lizard brain stuff. This is gut instinct stuff. This is stuff you can't, you never can like put a word to it, but it's a gut feeling. And so, you know, if you've got a, a swimming group, for instance, and you're all coming together to achieve this purpose, which is deep down in our lizard brains, hunt the woolly mammoth or something, and you've got people who don't want to be part of it, they just, you, you need to get rid of them. That's my opinion, because I, I think overall, they actually bring the group down. Yeah, exactly. That uh, that kind of mindset or thinking, it, you know, it, it infects a group. And, you know, you might have some people who are really keen to be there. You know, they want to work hard, but then you get a couple of people who just aren't into it for whatever reason. They can, yeah, bring the entire group down. And, um, you know, as a, as a coach, every now and then you'll have just a really good session where it's usually one of the hardest sessions that you do. But when everyone comes through and they they all put in, you know, a lot of times they're hitting PBs in training and, um, you know, they're just really pushing past what they thought they could do. And if they came to the session thinking, oh, yeah, I'm not – I'm just going to have an easy session today, but then you actually turn that around and get them to to really challenge themselves. Um, you know, they're the sessions where everyone just gels together. Um, they you know, bond as a group, and I mean, you, you come away with some of the the best friends from doing those kinds of activities together. And just like you would, you know, thousands of years ago with hunting, it's yeah. the same thing with a with a good workout with a group of people. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, so these days, I tend to think you know we've got work and home. And then usually people have like another place. So for some people it's a pub, for some people it's it's the gym, for some people it's the swimming club. Like, you know, you end up with 
this other place where you feel comfortable. And I mean, PlayStation even did an ad about this. Remember maybe 10 years ago, they had an ad that was PlayStation, the third place. And that's what it was referencing is they wanted PlayStation, like you going home and playing on your PlayStation. They wanted that to be your comfortable place. But the, like that, that kind of security and confidence you get from having a, a familiar place and environment to go and train, it, it can't be spoken about too highly. I, I mean, this is where a lot of gyms fall down, particularly, you know, back again, maybe 10 years ago when the kind of the boot camp craze was going on, a lot of shouting, a lot of you know, almost humiliation and stuff with the way people train people. And just like that's not how you build that. People don't really respond to that. I mean, some people will respond to that, but the majority of people aren't going to respond to being yelled at and belittled and, and things like that. And, you know, again, if you get people who, who are there for the right reasons and you get one or two who aren't, I mean, it really throws the whole thing out, particularly how many in a swim squad at a time. I mean, you probably run like four or five lanes at once and have, you know, like up to 10 people per lane or something. So, you know, if you have three or four bad ones, I mean, that's one bad person per lane pretty much. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, let's say you're doing a, a time 200 and someone drops out. Let's say there's eight people in the lane, the sixth person person drops out. Then, it, you know, the whole group can, can see that as they're swimming past and it just uh, it just spoils the, the whole thing for everyone. So And, and, it, and it screws the seventh and eighth person because they're not getting the draft anymore. Exactly, yeah. That's it. Uh, so, I, I was in uh, Thailand at Tanyapura last year and the girl leading my lane... So it was meant to be 50s on a five-second break from when the last swimmer came in. She was taking a uh, five-second break from when she hit the wall. So I was second in line. So I was getting like about a two-second rest. But then everybody else behind me, the other six swimmers, were ba- and it was 1,500 meters. So that, they basically swam a 1,500 meter at nearly 50-meter pace the whole time. <laughs> so, you know, we got to the end of it, and everyone was ready to kill her. I'm not surprised because, you know, she she just – Came the mat by accident without even and you're just horrible lane leading. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I read an article last week by um, Rosalind Kogan, the uh, technology guy, who said um, uh, he was he walked off a plane once. He was the first off, and he walked to the left instead of the right where the baggage was. And every what that entire plane ended up following him left to the end <laughs> of the terminal, <laughs> not to the uh, the baggage area. So it, um, yeah. So I mean, his lesson from that was you've got to be paying attention to, to what's going on. So, well, I mean, if, you, if you're not there to lead, you're, you're in the wrong place. I, <laughs> I read the thing about leadership yesterday saying exactly the same thing. Like, hey, if you don't feel like leading, you're doing the wrong job. You, you know, if, if you own your own company or whatever, I mean, you need to be switched on every day that, hey, these people are there to follow you. So uh, you better make sure you're doing it right. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, um, one of the things I wanted to ask was where do you think the – the focus is, and you kind of touched on this earlier, is where do you think the focus should be for adult athletes? So, you know, at the elite level, yeah, you're, you're just working on, you're trying to keep everything together. But with um, with your sort of amateur or age group adult, where should their focus be in terms of strength and conditioning, whether it's, you know, or diet, just in terms of a health perspective? Look, I think it's health first. I mean, you know, and this is if you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I probably would have changed my answer, but you know, I'm, I'm old and wise now, so, well, wiser anyway. I, I, I think health has to come first. So, you know, if you've got, and I had, as an example, a girl came to see me, and she was a decent 5K runner, so she was verging on a B qualifier for Com Games. So when I say decent, I mean, she was pretty good. Um, she had, I mean, she, she couldn't even stand straight, so she was twisted to one side, 
Um, one of her shoulders hurt, knee hurt. She had ankle stuff. She, I mean, all this stuff going on. And what she actually came to me to find out was whether or not I could recommend a pair of shoes that would allow her to keep running. I'm like, you, you joke. And, and her coach had, had sent her for that reason. I'm like, you're joking, aren't you? You can't even stand up like a, like a good human being with, you know, like that Leonardo da Vinci picture where, you know, the guy's standing straight and he's got the three different arm and leg positions. So that, that's pretty much a representation of how humans should be able to stand. I mean, not with like the star jump kind of thing going on, but, but if you can't stand straight, you've got a problem. And, and I think you've now got a health problem before you start worrying about your performance problems as to how fast you're running. Fix your health stuff first. So for some people, that's definitely going to be diet. There's a lot of, even endurance athletes, there's a lot of people who basically are using their endurance training to hide their crappy diet. There's a lot of, I mean, you know, I see people drinking Gatorade instead of water. And during training sessions, yeah, you probably need some fuel, but outside of training sessions, just eat some decent food. Like you don't need a goo on your way to training. Um, You know, you'd be better off having a piece of fruit or something. So I see a lot of athletes worrying more about performance when they should be worrying about health when it comes to their diet. I see it when it comes to worrying about their body. I've had people say things like, oh, yeah, I've got, you know, like this heart condition or something like that. But, you know, let's talk about, you know, I want to get my 2,000-meter row down to whatever time. I'm like, you're kidding, right? Like your doctor's got you having an ECG and he's even got you strapped up during the day wearing a heart rate monitor for 24 hours straight and you're worrying about performance. Like your doctor's basically saying you're borderline here for going to hospital and you're worrying about how fast you can row. I think you've got your priorities out of whack. Um, you know, just this idea that that we should be pushing all the time. And I think uh, more people would probably have a better life and probably even enjoy their sport more if they took care of like the underlying health problems first. I mean, you know, if if you if your plan of fascia hurts when you get out of bed in the morning, you shouldn't be going for a run. Mm. Yeah. Uh, sorry. No, no, go on. Uh, you know, if your knees hurt, hey, don't go for a bike ride. Like, you know, these are the last things you should be doing. You should be going off and, and getting some treatment. You should be working out why it's hurting and, and seeing if there's a way to alleviate the pain that isn't just taking a drug that's a masking agent. Because a lot of, you know, my belief is that most injuries that people do, and this is even goes for uh, Mitch, the young triathlete I trained, I mean, Unless you get hit by a car or like hit with a bat or punched in the face or something, the injury you've got is because you moved poorly. That's the bottom line. You caused it by doing something wrong. So if you don't fix that underlying problem, it's just going to come back or it's going to go somewhere else. And so, you know, next thing you know, your, your hamstring problem is now a lower back problem. Then it's a neck problem. And, you know, they might just keep putting Band-Aids on the problem and, and giving you some anti-inflammatories. But until you fix the reason that that thing keeps cropping up, you're never actually going to be able to enjoy what you're doing anyway. So fix the health problems before you worry about the performance stuff. And for most people, that may mean that, you know, you don't get to do performance stuff. There's a surprising number of people who who can't touch their toes, can't squat, uh, struggle to get up and down from the ground. And these are just, just basic human movements. So then they want to wonder about how fast they can ride or how much weight they can lift. And I think you've got that back to front. We should be worried about, getting the basic stuff nailed down before we worry about the performance stuff. And so, you know, it probably means the performance stuff needs to go for most people. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think a, a good way of looking at it too is, I mean, if you sort of look at that perspective, that's the long term that the sort of harder approach, I guess, is because you've got to, you've got to think long term with it. 
But if you don't take that approach, you'll get to a certain limit or a certain place where you can't can't break through your your best time or whatever it is. You can't break through it because you're limited by these these underlying issues. Whereas if you take the long term approach, fix your body, fix how you move, fix your diet, then it might take you longer to get where you want to go. But then you can really push past that. Yeah, uh, swimming is a great example. You know, you can get people who, I mean, they'll come and swim nearly every day and they'll flog themselves when they're there, but they're still slow as a wet week. The reason is because their technique is horrid. Now, they need to go away and they need to break that down and they need to spend some time fixing it. And, you know, that might take six months or a year or whatever. And then they come back and all of a sudden they're going much faster for less effort. But, you know, like you said, if you don't take that long-term approach, okay, you you can feel like you've flogged yourself, and if that makes you happy, that's fine. But if you actually want to enjoy it more, it probably means you need to pay attention to this underlying stuff. And I, I think, you know, for most people, that, and I'm not saying don't compete in triathlons or fun runs or, or whatever, but, you know, if people would stop worrying about how fast they could go, maybe worry instead about how much they could enjoy it or how pain-free they could make it, um, you know, it would be a different experience for them. Like, did you go to Challenge Melbourne? A month ago? Uh, no, I was away that weekend. Oh, so, so, I mean, the weather was horrid. Yeah. yeah. And and there were, I mean, my girlfriend's doing Ironman Melbourne, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying this publicly, but but we got down to the start, and, and she's she's an okay swimmer, but she's not a super strong swimmer, and that was definitely the worst conditions she'd ever been faced with. And she was freaking out. Like, she was nearly in tears standing on the beach, and, and it was raining sideways. And I just said to her, hey, you know, we're supposed to be here because you enjoy this. If, if you're not going to enjoy it, don't do it. And I wasn't racing anyway, so I mean, I was fine either way. But um, you know, I, I think she felt like she was forced to go and and do this thing. But if it's freaking you out so much, you're nearly in tears. It's the wrong thing today. You know, let, mm. let, let's go do something else today because this isn't the thing for you. I mean, if, if you're not going to enjoy it, and that could mean because you're in so much pain because your body doesn't work properly, and the idea of going out and smashing yourself to pieces for three or four or five hours or whatever is is a little bit hard to bear. Don't do it because for most of us, we're never going to get paid for this thing. So if you don't find great enjoyment from it and if you know the long-term cost or even the, the short-term cost into the next week of how badly hobbled you're going to be because you forced yourself to run a half marathon or whatever when you weren't really ready, just don't do it. It's, you know, it's not the end of the world. And, you know, there's not going to be tabloid headlines about it and, mm. you know, kids will still love you and you won't lose your job. You know, I mean, people put so much pressure on themselves, but the reality is the pressure is completely unfounded because the only person putting that pressure on them is themselves. Um, you know, and longer term, you know, I guarantee you won't lie on your deathbed and say, I really wish I did that Gatorade on whatever day it was. <laughs> I mean, you, instead, you'll say, I wish I spent more time with my kids or I wish I hadn't hurt myself so badly back in 2015 that I needed a total knee replacement in 2016. I mean, those are the things you'll regret. You won't regret missing a race because the conditions were bad or, you know, your body was hurting. Oh, exactly. And I think there's something like 200 people who didn't, uh, who chose not to race that day just because the conditions were so bad. And I was waiting for you to say 200 people, they pulled out of the water. Uh, that that might be the case. I remember hearing 200 and pulled out. So, you know, whether that's the, the swim yeah. or the, uh, I know there was dozens of people who were pulled out of the water and uh, and then just waited for the last person to come in so they could go. One of the pro women uh, who was first out of the water, first onto the bike, pulled in after about five minutes, just came back here and said, nah, too cold, forget it. It's not, not even worth it. <laughs> yeah, and it was one of those days where it's, it's there's not much fun about racing in those conditions. It was wet, it was windy, it was cold. And, you know, if yeah, as you said, if you're not going to enjoy it and – 
you know, no one's sort of counting on you to do it. It might be sort of good training, but you know, if you're in that kind of mindset, then then sort of what's the point? It's um, uh, you're better off saving your energy and um, you know, having a rest day or, or going to a training session. Talking about the cost, so everyone I know who did that race has been sick since. Really? Yeah, and so you know, like, I, I've read things saying that you know, like a week off sick will take you four weeks to get back to where you were in terms of fitness. So, okay, you did the race, you're a tough guy because you raced in bad conditions and now you're a month behind. And so maybe maybe challenge was your A race, but, you know, maybe Melbourne Ironman's your A race or maybe, you know, you've, you've just got a bunch of other races you're doing this year and, and, you know, so you've taken a month off training essentially because you hurt yourself so badly on such a horrible day that it's taken you a month to really recover. So, um, you know, it, I, yeah, I, I couldn't believe the number of people racing when, when I saw it. I was like, you know what? Like the, the entry's not so much and the conditions are so bad. Yeah, I get it. You're all very tough and it's meant to be a challenge and all that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, I can't believe anybody would have called that enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think many would have finished and said, I, I really enjoyed that race. Yeah, but you know, maybe my perspective is skewed. I mean, I've been working, I was fighting in martial arts tournaments since I was 13. So, you know, I, I competed for 27 years or something. Uh, I, I feel like I've been beaten up enough. And, uh, you know, so now when I look at things that I'm entered for, again, if I feel like it's just going to beat me up, because sometimes it's okay to get beaten up and, and you have to have the, the conversation with yourself where you decide whether, hey, this thing's important or it's not. Um, but just getting beaten up for no reason and being a punching bag, uh, I don't know anymore. That That's just not me. So maybe it's because I've got a long competitive background. Maybe people just getting into competing in things at 40, which is entirely possible these days. Um, an ex of mine, she did her first triathlon at like 36 or 37 or something, had never even so much as done a fun run before. So, you know, she went berserk for about three or four years. and competing everything and pushed herself and of course now we're never competing anything again probably <laughs> yes i think there comes a point in time where you um if you've done you know, let's say you've trained uh, almost full time for x amount of years or if you've competed uh, you know, a lot for a couple of years at a time uh, you, i think you know some people get to the point where they're like all right i'm just going to do this do this fitness thing or do this sport for, for fun um, whereas you know somebody might come to the the game late uh, and you know whether they want to swim like in sort of my my world you know they might want to swim rottenness they might want to swim the channel they might want to do a certain time in the hundred freestyle they um, you know they've got a point to prove and to prove it to themselves maybe uh, to themselves or maybe to other people but uh, uh, it's um, it all just depends what you've done in the past I think and where your mind is you know, I mean, marathon, too small. Everyone does Ironman now. That's the yeah. that's what the, the old guys are into now. And then, you know, I mean, you can climb Everest. That's probably, you know, like if you're – and, you know, not, not picking on a certain group of people, but, you know, if you're a, a rich guy and you've all, all you and your mates drive the same BMWs and you all belong to the same golf club and you all earn about the same amount of money, then you all went and bought expensive Pinarellas and Bianchis to one-up each other. Um <laughs> And so then you decide you're going to try to outman each other by doing tougher and tougher events. I just saw yesterday or the day before, some guy's going to swim the Pacific Ocean. So he's going to swim from Tokyo to Europe. Um, oh, sorry, from Japan to Europe. And, and I was like, well, there you go. That, you know, how, how long is it before someone else attempts to do that? So, um, yeah. That's, you know, uh, and, that's and channels, I mean, it's not a single channel anymore. You've got to do double channels. We all know that. Like single channels for weeklies. <laughs> 
Um, and one Ironman, that's not enough. You can do an Ultraman. <laughs> it just, Where's it going to stop? <laughs> exactly, because you know these days we just want bigger and bigger and better. And you know, from a like from a, just from a, a gym setting point of view, that's a dangerous mindset to get into. I mean, there's a uh, you know, for me, most of my clients are like 35 plus. That's the normal sort of personal training client. Um, and there's, I don't want to say there's a limit because that's that's not the right word in terms of how much strength they can develop. But there certainly is a limit in terms of uh, when you push beyond a certain point for most people, you're probably going to hurt or something is going to get hurt, if that makes sense. So, you know, like if, if you look around or if you come to our place, you'll see most guys using the deadlift as an example, training around 120 to 140 kilo. That's what most of the guys are lifting. Um, you won't find many guys in many gyms anywhere in the world training with more than about 140 kilo because things start to go pop when that happens. Or you start to do a lot of specialist training, which means that deadlifting is your thing. Um, you know, so the uh, th- there's certainly you know that that bigger is better thing. It, I find most of my job is actually holding people back. Do you find the same thing in swimming? So you said before, I mean, people can come in and and unwittingly kind of smash PRs and stuff like that in training. Uh, when you see that, do you hold them back or do you encourage them to go to the next step? Uh, well, I mean, it just depends what they they've sort of come in for. But I mean, I. Th- the, probably the most common thing I see is uh, holding people back in terms of their pacing in a set. So let's say you're doing 10 200s and it's meant to be aerobic pace. I'm just talking sort of 70% effort. Um, a lot of times people can't stop themselves from going 80, 90% trying to get faster each one and, and build up and then try and you know get close to their quickest time on the last one. So that's that's what I have the sort of biggest challenge with. And it's you know, people get competitive and then they want to try and get more out of the set than what it's actually designed for or something yeah. different out of the set than what it's actually designed yeah. for, I should well, say. Win training, right? I mean, they, no, no one cares if you win training. They don't hand out gold medals for training. They hold out gold medals because you won the race. Exactly. And it's, um, but it's the hard, I find that one of the hardest things to, um, to have people do. And, and I find it usually takes someone two or three years of, training with me to actually you know got to drill it into them that you should be going at this effort for this set because of this reason so it's um and it's all good and well to to explain that to them and the benefits of it but unless they take it on board as um as truth for themselves uh and you know that, that it's, they're not going to uh, to do it unless unless they see the um the bigger goal rather than just trying to do a good job at that set yeah, I, I think it takes a while for people i mean you know, this kind of beginner thing. I mean, I like to think of people sort of as perpetual beginners, like there's always something we can help them learn. But at the same time, like the, the absolute basics that someone needs to learn is probably going to take about two years, I think. Um, and, that, you know, it was the case for me with running. Uh, certainly with most of my clients, it's not until they've actually been with us for about two years that they start to, like you said, they start to understand that, hey, you don't need to come in here and try to kill it every single time you train and you're actually better off holding back a little bit because particularly these 40-year-old guys, if you go all out today, you're not going all out tomorrow. In fact, we might not be able to see you for another two or three days because <laughs> you're so stiff and sore that you just can't face the idea of another workout. Um, and certainly for you know the strength stuff we do for, let's just call them other sport people, whether it's rugby or triathlon or whatever, um, you know, we've got to really be smart about it because if you make someone so stiff that they can't run the next day, you don't just mess up one training session. I mean, you're potentially messing up two or three. So mm. 
way better to get them to hold back. Uh, but, but that takes a long time for people to learn because, again, they've got this bigger, better, faster, harder kind of mentality. Uh, and social media is not a help because everyone's posting on social media about, look at my Garmin and, you know, look how far <laughs> I rode and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, what people sometimes forget is, you know, you're looking at a friend who's about to do Ironman, for instance. So my girlfriend, she rode seven hours last week. So I guarantee some of her friends who aren't doing Ironman are looking at her going, oh, my God, like, she's so amazing. She's riding seven hours every Sunday. Well, no, no. She's doing it a couple of specific weekends before Ironman just because, I mean, you know, you have to. And after that, she'll just go back to, like, a more normal kind of length of ride on a weekend. And um, But you won't see anyone posting about their normal stuff, like, oh, yeah. I went out and did a 70% max heart rate run. <laughs> so, I mean, because that's not good for social media, right? Like, <laughs> I need to show you that I'm better than you. But, I mean, social media, you're only going to see people's PRs, their records, the flashy stuff. You're not going to see the, well, I spent 10 minutes on a foam roller and then I, I did yoga for 20 minutes and then I went for a 30-minute very easy run on grass, mm. which is really, that, that's actually the stuff that's actually supporting them and allowing them to get the, the great stuff. But you're not going to see the unsexy stuff. That's not what social media is about. Yeah, and that's, um, I mean, I'm guilty of that too. I Last week, I um, ran my first marathon. and Oh, yeah, 310. Congratulations, by the way. That is slick. Yeah, thank you. I was, um, to be honest, it was um, up until the last 7K. It was really fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think, like, I enjoyed the, just the training for it. I really enjoyed that aspect of it because just um, just getting out there, getting some run fitness and strength and, and building up into it, it's, um it's just such a sort of peaceful thing to do if you're, you're just out there to run for a certain amount of time or certain distance and, you know, you're not trying to, um, you know, go too fast in the runs. I, I really enjoyed that side of it. But, I mean, I, you know, I was using Strava just to record my training for um, a couple of weeks leading up to it. And a couple of my friends are training for Melbourne Ironman and I see they'd go out for a 37K run on a Saturday and I'd go running the Sunday and, for example, one, one of the days I was just going to do 5K because I was pretty fatigued. But I thought, well, stuff that. They've gone 37K. All right, I'll, go, I'll just go for 12. I'll go a little bit extra than what I'd planned. But, I mean, in that, in that case, it was good because I should have been going for a 12K run, but I, was, yeah, I wasn't in the, in the mood for it. But uh, it's so easy to look at what others are doing and, and look at those big sessions and think, okay, well, if that's normal, if that's what everyone's doing, then I've got to up my game. So do, there's, you the, pro, do you think the pro guys are doing it? Like, do you think... You know, like like Rini gets on Strava or whatever and goes, oh, what's Caroline Stefan doing this weekend? Or like, do you think they're actually on there checking each other out, going, oh my god, like look how much they're training? And uh, I mean, for a while, Lance Armstrong was on Strava, and this was when he was making his triathlon return, and he was actually putting deliberately wrong rides on there. <laughs> that, and that's the thing. I don't think uh, you know ninety percent of the the pros or the the elite guys at the very top of the field are. Um, uh, probably sharing what they're what they're doing. They might share it among you know their, their small group and stuff, but yeah. a lot of them aren't going to um, be giving away everything they're doing because they want to have uh, that that edge leading into race day. Do you, is it? Do you, do you think there's anyone out there doing secrets? I mean, I I don't think there's any secrets out there. I think everyone's just doing the work, and particularly like at pro mm. level, what you're seeing is is I mean, like with every sport, well, every individual sport anyway, what you really see is individual genetic talent rise to the top and that's a couple of you know it's it's a it's a combination of uh hard work and discipline and actual who their parents were mm. and, and that's right you've you've got to look at the 
the reality of your your build and um and your age and all that stuff you've, you've got to be realistic about what you what your goals are and where you're starting from and you know that's not to say don't don't dream big and don't try and you know aim really high but take you know take a step back and look at what the actual situation is and and then kind of work from there because you know for me for example i'm 80 81 kilos i know i'm not going to be running 230 at uh, marathons just because obviously you know weight weight's one issue and um i'm just just too heavy for that kind of thing so you've got to um you've got to take a step back sometimes yeah i mean that's when you start looking at the math in running i mean and because swimming you can kind of hide it right i mean swimming it seems like you don't necessarily get penalized for being big although i mean obviously streamlining counts for a lot so sort of being uh narrow-shouldered might help because that you know you could pierce through the water a little bit better, so you're not such a broad object going through the water. Um, yeah, but a lot of times, I mean, the thing is with uh, you know, let's say you get someone who's swum when they were younger and they might not have taken five years out of the water. A lot of those guys will come back with no training and do a 25 second 50 freestyle if they've got that background. So yeah, it's, especially for sprint swimming, yeah, you can get away with uh, having a little bit of extra on you. And uh, even if you're, let's say you're training. So um, a friend of mine, Sam Ashby, when he made the Australian team, he, I can't remember exactly what he weighed, but it was something like 85 or 86 when he raced at uh, World Champs. And I think his sort of normal weight was around 81, 82. So he was, he had an extra four or five kilos on him, but he was still, well, he swam his, I think his fastest time there. So Mm. it's... um, yeah, swimming's a little bit different with that. Sometimes well, I, extra weight can, can help. You know, if you read Macca's stuff, I mean, he talks about how, you know, oh, I was always big for a triathlete and I'm, I'm such a big guy and blah, blah, blah. And he's like 80 kilo. And I'm like, well, I'm like 84, 85. So, I mean, there's not too much size difference between us. And got to meet him in Tanyapura. His arms are pretty skinny. You know, his legs are, his legs are quite thick. So, he carries all his weight in his legs. But... Um, He's, he's just not a big guy, and so you know it always kind of cracks me up when you hear from these triathletes about how big they are and how hard things are for them. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Compare it to the uh, the average weight of someone their age. They're probably uh, ten kilos less than than the average, just for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, well, I, I think uh, I, I've read studies that showing that elite runners are twenty percent lighter for their height than most, like the average person in the population, and so and that's not even. Uh, that's an average BMI person because let's face it, the average person in the population now is probably overweight. So, um, yeah, what's supposed to be the midline for for weight at whatever height is is in elite runners, it's twenty percent less. So, you know, that, that's how you get these. Like uh, Lisa Martin was in the the mid forties, I think, when she was running successfully, and uh, Rob DiCostello, who I actually know a little bit. I mean, he ran at seventy and he weighs ninety now, and he's not out of shape. He's just uh, he's he's actually quite a big guy naturally. Um, but pretty much starved himself to be at 70 kilo. You read about these Tour de France guys who, I mean, they look, I mean, Bradley Wiggins lost seven kilo the year he won the Tour de France. That's a lot of weight. I mean, and, and you know, the, the pursuit cyclists are not the big guys. They're not like the Hoys and the, the Perkins and those guys. I mean, the, the pursuit guys are already skinny for a track cyclist. So uh, losing seven kilo is, is, that's a lot of weight. Oh, that is, and that's, yeah, you know, that takes a lot of commitment to uh, to lose that kind of weight. And I, I think it's a little bit like, um, for example, training for 
for an Ironman or Ultraman, like there becomes, there's this point where you're training for, for health and fitness. And then I think it gets to the point where if you go too far one way, it's, it almost becomes unhealthy in a way. If you're going for huge runs, huge rides, huge swims every day. Brett Sutton wrote about this like two days ago. So everyone thinks being lighter is better, and, and certainly for running, it, it will help a little bit. But maybe that means you get pushed around on the bike a little bit more or you lose some power on the bike because you're just not big enough and strong enough to push a good gear. Uh, if the water's rough, it means you get knocked around a little bit more. So I, I know like I'm 20-ish kilo heavier than my girlfriend. If we swim in the same conditions, I can probably just kind of plow through the water and she's getting knocked around all over the place. So uh, being lighter, again, for an age grouper, you start thinking about, okay, so what's healthy and, and performance-based? And maybe they're two different things. Mm. A lot of people who are panicked about what they weigh, well, you know, it, I think for girls particularly, you get to the point where you lose your period because you're training so hard and you've lost so much weight. You're definitely into the, the unhealthy side of things. For guys, I mean, you know, osteoporosis is it's predominantly a female-based things but you see huge rates of it in endurance athletes, and that's men as well. So they're basically giving themselves a problem that you know, is, is largely a female problem because of the weight loss. It's got nothing to do with the training. It's the weight loss. Mm. And, it's, and I think you've got to be aware of it, and uh, you've got to kind of um, – you know, and, and it's, it's, that's not to say don't go and, you know, don't go and do everything you, you sort of can to, uh, to try and hit this goal, but if you're doing that – for your, for your lifetime, if you're doing that for 40 years, then you're going to wake up one day and going to see the, the end result, which uh, isn't going to be what you're, you're hoping for. So, Look, eating disorders, I mean, you know, on the weight subject, eating disorders in endurance athletes are at a really high percentage compared to general population. And that's, again, it's men and women. Mm. Um, you know, and, and eating disorders, again, linked to osteoporosis and amenorrhea and all this kind of stuff that are not positive changes to your body. Uh, and, and I think it, it largely stems from this idea that light is right when it comes to, to endurance racing, that the lighter you get, the better off you are. Um, but looking at Macca as an example, so you know he is a lot bigger than elite triathletes or most other elite triathletes. Craig Walton's another one, and that's actually who was cited mostly in this Brett Sutton article. There are some bigger guys, uh, Torbjorn Sinbale, when he came, he was on the podium in Kona. I mean, he was substantially bigger than most of the guys. There are some successful guys who've been big, um, and, and, you know, that they realized that actually that was better for them. So, you know, some of these guys who, uh, I mean, they turn up on race day and they look like they've been in a concentration camp, not sure that's actually the fastest way to race. You know, short, yeah. shortly having a body that's working properly for you because you know, haven't starved yourself is probably going to be actually faster for most people. Mm. And I'm, uh, I mean, I come from a swimming background, so I'm, I'm always kind of biased in, in that way. But I think the... The swimming, it's kind of swimming and, and gymnastics are, are, are quite similar in that you need the strength, you need the uh, the fitness and the, well, not so much for gymnastics, but, you know, and kind of aerobic capacity as well. So I think there's, that's quite a good, happy medium for, yeah. for a healthy person. Just about a sport that leads to some messed up, like, images. I mean, gymnastics is probably the, the responsible for more psychiatric sessions than any other sport in the world. You know, the, at high levels, the daily weigh-ins, the policing of food, the I mean, the super strict conditions they train on. And I, I know a bunch of girls who've been 
level 10 gymnasts in Australia, so not in the elite category where they're competing for Australia in, at the Olympics and stuff like that, but nationally they're, they're among the top few. And the, the resulting body images and insecurities that come from gymnastics as a kid are, are actually a little bit scary, I find. I mean, I've only started realizing this recently, but, but uh, out of all the gymnasts I know, that, that a bunch of them that have got these long-lasting body and, and sort of mental issues that, that all come from weight, basically, and, and sort of being picked on about how weight, how much they weigh and how tall they are. And, you know, some of them, when you can still see their abs, like I got shown a photo by one of them and said, oh, yeah, my coach said I was fat back then. I'm like, you're joking, right? Hmm. Like, A, you were 14. So, you know, 14-year-old girls are going through puberty in most cases. And, uh, you know, you've still got a six-pack. Most people would kill for a six-pack. And your coach had the gall to call you fat. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure that's actually a, a smart thing to do to a young girl. Oh, and I've, uh, you know, I know swimmers who are you know, in their sort of early teens, you know, girls who have, um, who their their coach has, has said to them, you'd be faster if you didn't weigh so much and just silly things like that. Like, where, who, first of all, who, you should never really bring up that, you should never bring that up, that issue up, especially with a teenager and a, and a teenage girl. Yeah. Um, because it's a, it can just screw them up mentally and, and lead to eating disorders and things like that. But it's just, you know, like they're, yeah, they want to do well in the sport, but they're not, um, she may not be there to be Olympic champion or anything like that. And, you know, all of a sudden you've turned this thing that she loves to do is, yeah. is still pretty good at, but now it's, she's, all she's worried about is her weight and, you know, the sport's almost in the background of that. So it, it, kids sports tricky though. I mean, you know, if you deal with kids and things, I mean, look, let's be honest, how many kids who play AFL will actually end up in the AFL or how many kids who play tennis will actually end up on the tour? I mean, the percentage is very low. Even in something like CrossFit now, uh, I've got a girl who's riding for Breaking Muscle who, who's actually Masters World Champion two years in a row. So, I mean, she knows the sport pretty well. And she said that less than 1% of the people that compete in CrossFit will actually go on to even be at the games, let alone, you know, like place highly at the games. So, you know, hmm. and, and CrossFit is it's still a very young sport. It's still quite quite niche. It's not even close to like tennis or swimming or something like that. I mean, you know, the, the pushing kids, my, my belief is pushing kids for high performance in most cases is wrong anyway because the kids don't have the raw talent to actually ever make it anyway. Oh, that's right. It's, it's about being, um, make, you know, help them love the sport, help them enjoy their time when they're training and if they so and happen to be active. Yeah, exactly. And if that leads to them becoming elite down the track at, uh, 17, 18, 19 plus, and especially, I mean, for swimming, it's sort of early to mid late twenties, depending on, um, you know, the type of swimmer they are, but it's, um, you're better off keeping them in the sport for as long as possible because then they've got the best chance at becoming elite in that sport. So, it's um, the harder you push them early on, it's not necessarily going to translate into them becoming elite this sport. So, uh, if you're, especially if you're a, uh, a parent or or a coach who can be too hard on them, just um, you know, just ease up and and just enjoy it, you know, and and teach them the life lessons and um, teach them to be active and how to move and uh, and that's you know, that's what it's really all about. It's not about just being single minded with these young kids and and just wanting them to to make the Olympics, whatever it might be. Yes, I mean, this is actually one of the things that Leighton Hewitt's been going on about at Tennis Australia for quite a few years now, saying that, you know, the, the process is flawed. We've had a large number of junior 
Open champions, like Junior Wimbledon champions, Junior US Open champions. And when you look at their transition into senior ranks, it really hasn't followed on. I mean, basically what we've been doing is burning kids out early on. And so if you go back to like the start of sports science, which is sort of Russian East Germany back in the 60s and 70s, um, they had no concern about creating junior world champions because in most cases, if you create a junior world champion as a senior, they do nothing. They're done. You know, you're far better off not even specializing them for as long as possible, get them to that point where they're at 16 or 17. You can see whether they've got the passion. You can see whether they've got the talent. They're old enough to understand the sacrifices they need to make. Then let's start talking about specialization. And all of a sudden, you've got an athlete who basically has been athletic for probably the last 10 or 15 years, has really kind of got a big big pyramid of, of movement and strength and flexibility that they can use for just about any sport they take on. Uh, and, and that's how you create actual senior champions. So th- this idea that we need to push the kids anyway, like there are soccer schools in Australia where the kids are playing year round and then they're wondering why the kids are breaking down at 14 and 15. Well, cause kids aren't designed to, to do that. I was speaking to a woman a couple of weeks ago whose uh, daughter is not a bad runner. So she's 14 going to nationals for hurdles. So nationals is in now like two or three weeks and she's got stress fractures in her shins. And she said, it's actually the second time it's happened. I was like, well, what do you mean it's the second time it's happened? Oh, well, she was going to nationals like two years ago and, and this happened. And so we had to stop. And last year she actually ran better than she's ever run before. And we barely did any running. I'm like, what's that tell you about how much volume you're doing? Like it's, it's clearly way too much. Oh, but she's not doing much. We, you're talking from an adult's perspective. She's a 14 year old girl. Yeah, you know, her needs and her recovery are very different. I mean, and we even talked about sleep, and she said, "Oh no, she gets eight hours." I said, "Well, I don't know if you know this, but uh, uh, AIS has just brought out new guidelines for junior athletes and sleep, and actually indicates for a fourteen-year-old that ten hours for an athlete is optimal." And so, right? yeah, so your kids actually down twenty percent on sleep every night. So, uh, is it any wonder she's not recovering the way you think she should be? So, I mean, even just as something as simple as that, but they're determined to push ahead with with this fourteen-year-old girl. Guaranteed, you won't see her running at 16 and 17. She'll be done in two years and never be able to run again because they'll just break her. Mm. Yeah, right. Well, that's, that's interesting. And I mean, sleep, um, that's, you get that, uh, and, I, and I'm, I'm sort of guilty of it too, but you get uh, teenagers or school kids who are just, just want to sort of sleep in and, and sleep until 8 o'clock or 8.30 and then just kind of drag their feet into school. Um, but it's, um, you know, sleep is, is the body talking? It's, it's the body needing that, um, needing to rejuvenate and, and get that rest. So it's uh, it's your primary means of, of rebooting the system. So sleep and food, and you know when you don't have those two going for you. So like if you're short on sleep, what happens is you want to eat crap food because that's the cycle. You know you, you you basically produce more cortisol. Cortisol tells you to eat sugar, so you go and you eat some bad food. But uh, when you are low on sleep, you actually need to eat even better quality food than normal because you've got to make up for the bad sleep you had. So that's tough because your brain and body are going to tell you to do one thing and you have to override it. And this is one of those things where you know if you instill willpower and discipline in the gym and create habits, then they'll revert to those habits even when things are stressful. Um, but yeah, the, the sleep is, I mean, you know, it, it's one thing for junior athletes, but you know, if you've got a 40-year-old who's trying to be good at something and they're only going to sleep four or five hours at a time so they can squeeze their training in, that's not going to last long. Like, you know, you might be able to push it for a few weeks like that and in the short term performance will improve 
and the next thing you know, you're sick or you're injured, and you've got a month off training because you know. That, and that'll be the cycle: is people push hard, hard, harder, injured or sick, and then they go light, 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 hard, hard, harder, sick, light, 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 and you know, you just see this cycle going on and on year after year after year, and you're like. Maybe if you just backed off a little bit because, you know, if, if you've got less recovery, you have to actually have less work because they need to be balanced, right? Mm. If I have less recovery, I don't get to do more work. I actually have to do less work. Maybe now's not the time to do all the high-intensity stuff. Maybe now's the time to do just some base stuff if you're going to be under a lot of stress and not sleeping much. But no one wants to seem to back off because we're all so tough and super and, you know, all my friends on social media saying that they're riding more than me and uh, next thing you know, you're injured. You see it um, before when when elite swimmers tend to taper a week or two weeks out from a, a big comp, a lot of times they'll get sick because their body's redlining for such a long time and then they finally get that rest in their body kind of sh- whatever whatever happens it tends to shut down and just say okay you know now we can just now we can relax but that change just make, people tend to get the flu or the cold and uh, and that takes them a week to get better from that and then they kind of lose that uh, a little bit of strength and a little bit of fitness from it. So it's, uh, I think, yeah, just, just being able to rest and recover throughout your normal training cycle uh, makes makes a huge difference. And swimmers who are training full-time, they a lot of times if they're within a, a proper squad, they'll get to start at 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. instead of the, the 5 a.m. starts. And that extra sleep just allows them to push so much harder in training. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that's the difference between being a pro and being an amateur, right? You know, mm-hmm. this is, you know, if you ever want to go, like, I mean, at, at Tanya Pro last year, I got the opportunity to go away, and it was, it was, uh, I think the total thing was eight days or nine days. I mean, because there were there were two long rides in it, so we we're definitely there for more than seven days. Um, but the opportunity just to train at least twice a day, quite often three, with nothing to do but eat or sleep in between and really because Tanipuru is kind of, it's, it's in the middle of Phuket. So it's not in like a tourist area. There's, there's not much to do. It's like a 30 minute drive. If you want to go to a bar or something like that. So basically you have dinner and you go back to your room, you go to bed and you know, in two weeks you can cram in an enormous amount of training in a training camp situation as a, even as like an old 40 year old guy like me, but you can't sustain that back at home with work and mm. you know, kids and, and all that kind of, it's just impossible. Yeah, well, we ran. I was there last year in November. I ran a, a hell week camp for. Uh, I, I remember seeing that, and, and I was like, "Holy cow!" Like the volume you guys did was enormous. They, well, we basically swam twice a day every day, except for I think maybe one of the days there. So, and most people were doing three sessions, maybe four sessions a week. But the reason they were able to to you know to do that for for eight days was because they would. Uh, get to sleep in, they'd get to train, go and have breakfast. It was all prepared. They didn't have to worry about anything. <laughs> then they can go back and maybe have a nap or do some stretching with the group. Uh, then you've got lunch. They might go and do a strength workout and then they can hang by the pool, read a book, and then we'll train again in the afternoon and then go and eat dinner and it's all prepared for them and they go back to their room and they're completely wiped. But they've got that recovery time and they don't have the stresses of work, of kids or anything like that. And you know, you get people who are in their their forties, in their fifties, who are been, who are able to do all of these sessions and perform really well at them, and they had never done anything like that in their life in terms of um, in terms of a, a swimming you know week like that. It's just it's that's more than what a lot of uh, 
elite, you know, elite swimmers are doing in terms of the, the number of sessions. So just with that, uh, no distractions, it makes a huge difference. It does. It does. I mean, you know, it, it's, uh, for, for that kind of training, I mean, God, the, the setup there is, is fantastic. As you say, I mean, you oh, know, so the good. rooms are great. The pools are fantastic. I mean, the, because there's no chlorine in them. So you get out and you feel fantastic. Um, the food's good. The running track is great. The, I mean, even the roads are fantastic. And tires are, you know, for people who are a little bit scared to ride on the road here, the tires are so accommodating to cyclists. Uh, I mean, my girlfriend was telling me on one of the rides she went on, uh, they ended up going the wrong way down one road because there was no other way to cross over. So they're basically doing like a kilometer on the wrong side of the road. And no, I mean, imagine if you did that here, the reaction you'd get. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and but there, no horns, no finger waving, no, no, <laughs> just just all cool. And uh, uh, I mean, you know, just an amazing place to train and allows you to get, like you said, I mean, just an enormous amount of training in and the facilities are set up to allow you to do that. So, you know, I, I actually think for, because, and Thailand is so close for us, you know, for, that's probably one of the best things that, that athletes here could do would be to go there and allow themselves to be in that training camp situation. Oh, you know, definitely. Yeah, I mean, and, and whether it's for, you know, like your Hell Week or whether it's for one of their super camps or you can actually just go over there and be part of their regular training. So you don't even have, you can just go whenever it suits you. Um, you know, it would be a, a great experience for a lot of people because, you know, the people who are keen on their sport who find time or find it difficult to find the time here to, to get everything done, I think it's just a, a great way to get in a whole bunch of training and it certainly makes you feel like a superstar while you're there as well. Yeah, if, if you've never trained full-time without any distractions, you'll go there and you'll come away from the week and just think that was absolutely awesome. It's just, it's so hard to beat it. You come away from a holiday feeling fit. You've met new people. You've had a good time. It's it's the best kind of holiday you can get, I reckon. I mean, Yeah, I mean, and that's what my girlfriend and I said. So we, we both went last year. I actually wrote an article about it for a Tri Magazine and um, – uh, it was fantastic. I mean, normally we go on holiday and I'm bored after about two days because yeah. I, I can't handle sitting on a beach for more than about that length of time. And there's only so many temples and churches and whatever you can go and look at. And uh, that was perfect for me. I mean, you know, got to go away and train a lot. Um, we saw a couple of temples and then we came home. <laughs> but that, yeah, that's such a good time though. It's um, getting, getting to do all that stuff. And I had my honeymoon last year and we were over in Europe for a couple of weeks and uh, every day I'd have to either get in the ocean and swim or go for a big run and, and keep that active, um, that active side up because, or else the, you know, you don't want to come back from a holiday and you've, you've eaten a lot of food and you've gotten fatter and, um, you come back and you need another holiday because you feel like crap because of the, um, just how lazy you've been. So it's, um, yeah, that's why we're heading back there in October for another whole week, which, uh, I'm really looking forward to. Um, nice. I know you've got to uh, we'll wrap it up here. I just want to go through one more thing, and that's I want you to talk about goals versus systems. I know you've written a, a good article on that on the uh, the Breaking Muscle site, um, but can you talk a little bit about that goals versus systems? Yeah, look, I mean, and it, this is it's, it's like what I was saying before about you know if we can set up discipline and willpower and 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 form habits in the gym. So habits are the things that allow you to be successful long term. You know when. Look, I get up at five pretty much every day. I get up at, at six on Saturdays and Sundays. I mean, you know, so I, I kind of have, have a sleep in, but I honestly wake up about that time anyway. I've been doing it for so long. It's habit now. Uh, even like today, for instance, I don't take all the PT stuff at my work first thing in the morning, but I get up at normal time. And the extra time I have from not taking the first couple of sessions 
is uh, I, I just dedicate it to other work anyway. So by the time the sun comes up, I've already got two hours of work done compared to most people for the day. So, you know, like this having a system and, and my system here is I go to bed at a certain time, I wake up at a certain time, um, even down to breakfast. My breakfast never changes because, frankly, I'm not thinking too sharply at 5 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have this system in place that allows me to get a lot of stuff done very early on. And so what a lot of people do is that they'll set this goal that says, I want to get a lot of work done. Well, okay, but how are you going to get this work done? What's the method that you use to accomplish it? And so the goal is is the output, it's the end result, but the system is is what you put in place that allows you to get that end result. So, you know, most people want to focus on, you know, I want to weigh this, I want to run this, uh, you know, like they have this end result in mind, but they don't really have any idea how to get there. I think for if you have a straight performance goal, it's not so difficult anymore because, you know, you can buy a, uh, you know, here's your Ironman plan, here's a marathon plan, whatever it happens to be. And so your system becomes this plan. This is how I'm going to complete my marathon. Uh, but the problem then I think longer term for people is when you finish that plan, what's your system? So, you know, you, you still need some, uh, you need some self-regulation there. So a lot of people, you know, they'll be on their couch to 5K plan or whatever and that race finishes. Well, because you don't actually have a, a genuine system in place, you're not going to be very successful. So if you look at Biggest Loser, for instance, very easy for them to lose weight in the house. No work, no kids. They don't even prepare their own food in a lot of the cases. They've got doctors there keeping an eye on them. They've got trainers there training them. They've got all this stuff done for them. Uh, they go home and most of them revert back to their pre-competition weight after the, the, the show's over because they don't have a system in place to make it work in the real world. So, you know, this idea that, hey, I just want to weigh a certain amount. Well, okay, but how are you going to sustain it? What's the plan? What's the system? And so most people, if they can think about that rather than what the end goal is, because, you know, my system of, you know, I have a way I construct my meals. So that allows me to maintain about 10 to 12% body fat year round, regardless of what kind of training I'm doing. It allows me to recover from my training. I have a system about when I go to sleep, when I get up. So I get eight hours sleep every night. Uh, if possible during the day, and you've kind of put me out of whack here. This is normally my nap time, by the way. Oh, geez. You're performing <laughs> really well for uh, your sleep time. <laughs> but, it's like, but you see how I've got this stuff in place that it doesn't actually matter what the end result is. So if my end result is to do an Ironman, it's okay because I've got all this stuff in place that allows me to withstand the training. If my goal is to, I don't know, doesn't even matter what it is. I mean, I, I've got stuff in place. And so when things start to get stressful, you just resort back to your system and you'll find that that's usually the way to be most successful. I mean, the the best example I can give, so I was in the Army Reserves, I was in the Commandos. When your weapon jams, there's a process, you know, because the last thing you want when the bullets start flying around is this kind of, oh, my God, my weapon jammed, what now? Well, I've got a system. You know, I, I know exactly what I have to do when my weapon jams and, and you know, luckily the, the weapon the Australians use is, is quite simple and so there's only a few things you need to think about but there's a a step-by-step system that allows you to figure out exactly what's wrong with your weapon and clear it and get back to fighting so uh, I think if people worried less about the goals and more about the systems what they'd actually find is the goals kind of tick themselves off because you know when you're just in generally good shape a half Ironman it's no big deal you can go I I did a five and a half hour Ironman on on two weeks of training last year (laughs) and well that's not super quick but that just shows you what you know, like general good training system, diet, sleep, how it all adds up. Yeah. 
Uh, and that's right. And, and I've got a very similar sort of system. I break it down to a couple of areas, but I mean, number one, a simple one is is clothing. I mean, I I buy a couple of the same shorts, the same shirts. You're on the uh, Jobs Albert Einstein plan. I'm basically the next Steve Jobs, I think it is. So <laughs> it's um you know that way I don't need to worry about um what I'm wearing each day. I can just pretty much wear wear the same thing or in a different combination because yep. I don't want to have to dedicate extra brain power or another couple minutes of thinking each day to that because that's not really important to me. And sure, and if you're, if you're going to squad, when's your first squad? Is it five a.m. or six a.m.? Yeah, six a.m. Yeah, I mean the last thing you want to be is rooting around for clothes in the dark at five o'clock in the morning, wondering what you're going to wear. I mean, so, so I'm like you. I, I wear the same thing to work every day, pretty much. Uh, I actually lay it out the night before so I can yeah. just get up. I, and it's all out in the living room. So I get up, go out to the living room. I don't even disturb my girlfriend looking for my clothes in the morning. I just, you know, it's all out there waiting for me. That, yeah, that's exactly right. So, there's, I mean, there's clothing, there's there's food. I buy food on a, a Sunday. And um, so I know what I'm going to have for breakfast, lunch, dinner pretty much every night. I might change it up once or twice, but you know, keep it simple that way. And then you've got your workout workout plan for the week, what sessions you're going to or what sessions you're going to do or at least what times you're going to train. And then the same thing with work is you've got these dedicated um, you know, work hours to get things done. And you're 80% of the way there, if you've got those things, those things mapped out and, and systemized, then you know, everything's going to fall into place whether or not you know, you, you've got something on during your nap time like now or whether you get um, thrown out of whack because everything else has um, been lined up prior to that and, and you've done it. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, and this is, you know, I, I think why a lot of people are unsuccessful with things, like because you know, you can um, you can exert some willpower and some self discipline in the short term, but you've only got a finite amount of willpower to use up for things. So you know, until it's habitual, until it's systemized, you know, when life throws a stress at you, let's like let's say for instance, Feb fast. So people give up drinking for February. Short term, anyone can give up drinking for four weeks, you know, but what most people should be realizing at the end of February is actually they don't need alcohol at all. Um, and you know, but they get to the end of February and like, Oh great. I'm going to celebrate the end of it by having a few beers. Like, <laughs> but, but you just went four weeks without drinking. You proved you don't need it at all, but they've only done it because it's a short term thing. If you said to someone, I want you to give up alcohol for good. Well, that's a very different kind of conversation to have with someone. But if they had a system in place, they'd find it easy. Maybe alcohol is a, a difficult thing to think about, but you know, if you think about quitting cigarettes, it's not usually very successful the first time because the goal is quitting cigarettes. But, you know, when it comes down to it, they don't have a system like, hey, when I'm in a social occasion and other people around me are smoking or someone offers me a cigarette or I'm stressed at work or the kids are bugging me, what's my system to deal with this and not have a cigarette? All of a sudden, we start having a successful plan in place. I'm just going to give up smoking. Not much of a plan. Yeah, it's a really good point. You need that system, that kind of checklist of things to do in case of, X. So, you know, what are you going to replace it with? Or because um, because life doesn't run to your. I'm going to do an Iron Man plan. I mean, you know, <laughs> life is going to go. Hey, you've got Christmas parties to attend. You've got kids. This. You've got spousal problems with this. You've got stress at work. You've got you know. You've got all these things. It's only when you can actually revert to your system. And go. Actually, I spoke. I'm, I'm supposed to eat now, and this is what I'm supposed to eat. Or you know. Even though I'm and running my own business, like you'll know this, there's, there's never a point where everything's done. There's always more work to do, you know. And I mean, I could stay up all night, every night, addressing different work issues. 
but the system says I have to go to sleep at a certain time. And actually the system is has another step in it that says I have to turn my computer off at a certain time well before I go to bed. So actually my mind is quiet when I go to bed. So, you know, until you've got all these things in place, the stress of life is going to keep messing you around. And that applies to training, what you weigh, you know, what you want to compete in. You've got to have the system in place. I guarantee if you go and you get all the top performers in any field, you know, whether this is we're talking uh, business or sport or arts, they've all got a system. I mean, even Hemingway, you know, if you read some of his comments about writing, he says, you know, write drunk but edit sober. <laughs> and he's clearly kidding, but that's a system, man. Like, it, it's, yeah. a, it's a joke, but it, that's a system. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and it's... um. Uh, and just on that, you know, you turn your computer off at a certain time and just uh, just sticking to that, it, I mean, I think that for me, I, I know at least you, you want some sort of element of surprise or spontaneity within your, in your day, but you can work that around your, um, you can kind of work that into your, your normal system because I know that if, you know, if I'm going to be working until 11 p.m. at night, I'm not going to feel like working the next day. My mind won't switch off for another hour, so I'm not going to get to sleep until after midnight. So I'm better off doing less work today, shut the computer off at, say, it's 9 p.m. or whatever it might be, and then I know that, okay, I've got this to do tomorrow, but I'm going to be so much fresher to do it, and it's probably going to take me a quarter of the time if I'm focused on it. So, yeah, it all works out. Got to have the system. You know, and it's – I mean, I used to joke that I had three things – in, in life, and there was, so there's work, there was relationships, and there was training, and and you know because if you think about it, really everything comes down to those three things. So work is obviously how you pay your bills and buy your food and all that kind of stuff. So that's fairly important. Relationships that's your relationships with every other human being on the planet. So that's your spouse who you have a particular kind of relationship with. That's your customers who you've got another kind of relationship with. That's your family. That's another different kind of relationship. And all these relationships need managing all the time. And then you've got like your thing, your third place. So for me, that's training. Uh, for some people, it would be art or music or whatever, but you've got this, this other thing. And people would say to me, oh, you know, you're so lucky that your life is so simple. I mean, you don't actually understand how difficult it is to weed out all the excess and keep it all at bay all the time so I can actually just be 100% focused on these three things all the time. Mm. Uh, but it comes down to system again. That's so, right. and, yeah. and in some cases, that means, hey, you know that thing you invited me to that's at a pub on a Sunday night? I'm just not going to come, man. It's not that I don't like you. I'd really love to come and hang out with you. But, you know, I get up at 5 o'clock on a Monday morning and work is part of this really important thing. And my relationship with you, which I obviously need to address, I can hang out with you a different way than maybe at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night. Yeah, and and no is probably one of the hardest things to say. But if you get into the habit of your default response is no, <laughs> what's that? It gets easier. I mean, you yeah. know, it's, we were talking before about how you know, you, you teach the kids who come along to say please, thank you, and hello, and goodbye, and all that kind of stuff. And, I, I mean, in some cases, I mean, we're really quite simple creatures. We're not far-off monkeys, really. And, you know, you just got to teach people that, hey, don't bother inviting me to these social things. <laughs> it's not that, again, it's not that I don't like you, but it, it means that I need to make time to spend time with you uh, at a more appropriate time for me because I, I can't come to those things because those things then are going to affect my like these three most important things in my life. And when you start messing with the pillars, everything's going to fall to pieces. And, and I mean, that's even like like health and strengthening. I mean, health is, you know, sleep and food, uh, you know, and, and paying attention to your injuries and things like that. 
performance is, you know, it's strength and flexibility and conditioning. I mean, you know, you've got these these things in there that are all these pillars. When you remove one pillar or you affect it negatively in any way, like the whole thing tumbles over. So when it comes to like the whole thing, the whole thing has to, for me, come off these three lifestyle things, which is, you know, the work and the relationships and the, the training. If you start messing with them, then everything's really going to crumble pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, uh, I know it's in that time, so I'll, I'll let you go. Oh, where, what, uh, where, can, uh, where can people find you and um, tell people what, what sort of stuff you're working on at the moment and about your, um, your gym and all that sort of stuff? Okay, so website is readpt.com, R-E-A-D-P-T.com. The gym is in Warrigal Road, Moorabbin in Melbourne. Uh, things I'm currently working on. So uh, mostly at the moment, I, I'm focused on helping my girlfriend get through Ironman. I think, it's a, a, I think Ironman is a fantastic achievement for people I, I think it's a and it, you know what it's a really um it's a really available achievement like everest we'll call everest probably the greatest challenge most humans could ever do but it's so expensive and time consuming that it's quite unrealistic for most people to go down that path whereas iron man is really quite accessible and and for that, those of us in melbourne i mean we live in in bentley so it's pretty much just down the road from us um you, you can't find a more available great fitness test than that. Mm. Uh, for my customers, I just hope they live good, healthy lives. So, uh, you know, and, and everyone has a, a, a different need for that. So, you know, we, we are, are trying to make that happen for a whole bunch of people at once, which is quite difficult. Uh, my personal training, I'm just trying not to suck as a human being. <laughs> you know, and, and that, that means, uh, you know, we need, I need to move. Uh, I need to lift some heavy things. I need to make sure to retain as much flexibility as possible because as we get older, all these things go out the window. I mean, fitness decreases and strength decreases and flexibility decreases and all of that stuff, are, they're signs of aging. So I'm just trying to just trying to stay you know, as good as I was yesterday. So my, my long-term goal is actually that when I'm 50 or 60, I'm as good as I am now, you know, and, and I think that's not a bad goal. Definitely. That's... Uh... Yeah, that that lifelong approach, that long term approach to to feeling good, is um, is what it's all about. Because if you haven't got your health, then you've got nothing else. That's you know, once that goes, everything else goes. I mean, there's a saying, and I can't remember who said it. I've seen it attributed to a lot of different people. Um, you know, that man spends the first half of his life trying to acquire wealth, hmm. and then the second half of his life spending that wealth to try to reacquire the health that he lost in the first half of his life. So yeah. Um, you know, I'm not very rich, so I hope I don't have to spend too much. But hope- <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for joining the uh, the podcast. Like you should be, you should have your own podcast. I think you'd be uh, be great hosting your own one. You know, I um, Breaking Muscle has a podcast, and I'll actually be helping to host that from sort of mid year onwards. So now we're launching this. Oh, that's right. Everyone needs to for just all round general health and fitness advice. Uh, Breaking Muscle Australia launches March two. Uh, it's a localized version of Breaking Muscle. So Breaking Muscle is probably the it's, – it's one of the best fitness websites online. It's It's got CrossFit. It's got endurance stuff. It's got strength training. It's got kettlebells and yoga. It really is very far-reaching, so it's not niche-targeted like most websites are. Um, the Australian version will have stuff about AFL and rugby and triathlon and all that kind of stuff. So if people are looking for good health and, and fitness information online, definitely come and check out Breaking Muscle Australia. But we'll have podcasts on there. Uh, it'll be interesting talking to because some people from America really struggle to understand me. 
is that I've had I've had a few comments about my accent with um, with my American audience, but I think uh, once people kind of dial into your your accent, uh, uh, I mean, I think I think you speak normally, of course, but um, I think once people dial into it, they can understand it. It just takes them half an hour of listening. I reckon that's yeah, uh, you know, it, yeah. it's not too bad. But uh, you know, I think you'd be a great great host on a podcast. So thanks for uh, thanks for joining the Effortless Swimming podcast and uh, those listening, go and check out readpt.com. Is .com, not .au? Yes, no, just .com. We're, we're global. We're not just Australian. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, thanks again for joining me. It's been great having you on the podcast. No problem. Thank you, Brendan. Thanks for joining us on the Effortless Swimming Podcast. To get transcriptions, bonus videos, and to be the first to hear about new episodes, go to swimmingpodcast.com.